0: Good evening, everyone. I want to thank everyone for coming to the Central Library tonight. On behalf of our CEO, Carla Hayden, I'm Roswell Encina, Communications Director here at the Pratt, and we want to welcome everyone here for a very special edition of our Writers Live series. Um, A couple weeks ago, I was watching CBS Sunday Morning. They were doing the 30th anniversary of the attempted assassination of President Reagan, and that's when I was first introduced to our first guest, was on TV, and all the information and on that entire story that came out of Sunday morning, I was personally surprised of all the information that I did not know what happened that day in 1981 um, and everything else that came afterwards, which for me, I thought was, God, that's astonishing that all that was happening. And most Americans did had no idea that was happening. So I know you're all eager to hear from our special guest tonight. Um, as I mentioned, he's been on CBS Sunday morning. You also heard him on WYPR on midday with Dan Rodericks, and heard a lot more information about that day in 1981. So we're looking forward to hearing from Del Quinton Wilbur here shortly. The person who will be moderating tonight's event is somebody who needs no introduction. He, he's been with the Baltimore Sun for since 1979. He's an award-winning columnist, and you hear him every day on midday on WYPR. He's a big supporter of the Pratt Library, and we consider him a friend, Mister Dan Rodericks.
1: Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Roswell. Um, Del Quentin Wilbur and Dr. Paul Columbani seated at the table here. Uh, I guess we'll start with a question for Del Wilbur, the author of Rawhide Down. Okay, is it okay if i you? Come on. Um, this was 30 years ago, Del. So how old were you when Ronald Reagan was shot? Six. You was six years old. It means you were born in... Uh, you were born in... Uh, 1974.
2: 1974.
1: Just wanted, to, did you bring a birth certificate? <laughs> we'll take long form, short form, it doesn't matter. So you worked. I worked with Dell at the Baltimore Sun uh, for a number of years. He was law enforcement reporter there. Uh, among the many stories that he wrote for the Sun uh, included an investigation of the uh, former, now former, Baltimore Police Commissioner Edward Norris and his use of uh, certain city funds for for personal use. <laughs> And the stories appeared in the Sun, and then there followed a federal investigation. And when we went to the courthouse to read the indictment of the police commissioner, um, the charges against the police commissioner, it pretty much read like the original story in the Baltimore Sun. I think they just pretty much pasted it over and turned it into an indictment. So that's what uh, Dell is remembered for in the newsroom there anyway. Uh, He was a very, very strong reporter, very enthusiastic, aggressive reporter. And a stickler for facts—that's what I most remember about you. And now he's gone on to the Washington Post, and he's published—he's uh, written a book that's been been published about the uh, attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan in 1981. <clears throat> I was in the Evening Sun newsroom the day that happened. Dell was, as he said, six years old. So, uh, some 28, 29 years later, uh, what got you interested in the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan? Which Many people in this room remember, but, uh, you know, it has not been top of
2: mind for most Americans for a, a, a long time now. Um, well, I got into this. I cover, you know, I worked at the Baltimore Sun. It's a great honor, by the way, to be up on this panel in this great historic library, of which I had a library card when I was in Baltimore, and I was here all the time. Um, this is this guy, Dan Rodericks, is one of the best newspaper columnists in the country. You know, it, I don't get to listen much to YPR, so I'll leave that. You're a great interviewer Thank when you, I was uh, on there, but, you know, the... The newspaper column. Thank you, Del. The newspaper column, you know, I, I learned a lot. Mike Hill, one of my former editors, is here, too. And he was always directing me when I was in the Howard County Bureau. You remember this? Mm-hmm. You need to read Dan Roderick's column to understand how to humanize a story. You know, so I remember well, that. So you. it's a great honor. Thank you, Mike. The two guys over here, Dr. Carl Columbani and, and Dr. David Gins, are great. Um, it's a great honor to be here, too. They really helped with the book. Um, so I, was, uh, I covered the federal courthouse for The Washington Post, now, I, after working at the Baltimore Sun, and uh, I covered John Hinckley, some hearings involving John Hinckley. And Hinckley was found not guilty by reason of insanity of shooting Reagan and three other men that day, and in 1982, he was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and he's been at St. Elizabeth's Hospital for the Insane ever since. But in doing that, he gets periodic hearings in federal court where he gets more freedom. You know, and I was covering a hearing where they were going to grant him a driver's license. He was fighting to get a driver's license, and to get more t- unsupervised visits home to his parents in Virginia, was mother his father had died. It was just a bizarre hearing. You know, you're covering this hearing, and he's like, his face was so flat. It was like no emotion. They were talking about his sex life and his, you know, the, the, the trauma, the mental trauma he goes through when he visits, when he's at home, and people just like kind of cast him aside as this crazy guy who killed, almost killed Reagan.
1: How old is John Hinckley now?
2: Fif- 55, 55. And I covered the story, and as Dan will test, you write a story, you move on. You know, you have a lot to do. And five or six days later, maybe a week, this FBI official calls me over to his office in the Washington field office of the FBI, which is three blocks from the courthouse. He says, you gotta come over here now. We have to talk about what you're working on. Oh, okay, I get over there, and he goes, we really don't want you to write this story. And they had heard I had been working on, an under, I knew about an undercover investigation, nothing to do with Hinckley or anything, but Ethiopian taxi cab drivers bribing city officials, okay? Now, if you're in D.C., not that unusual that city officials would get bribed, okay, <laughs> happens. And um, I cover a lot of cases involving that kind of thing. And I'm like, okay, whatever. He's like, you can't do it. we two years. Please don't do it. Please don't do it. Okay. And we're sitting just like this at this table, and his press woman's there. And Please don't wreck it. And I said, All right, you know, I can't promise anything, but I don't know. He gets up from the, the conference table, goes to a desk, and I hear him rummaging through a drawer. Okay, he comes, comes over and slaps something heavy in my hand. I look down. And it's a gun. And I went, my first thought was, wow, this is a new level of intimidation, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah. You know, this isn't the era of dead fish or whatever is gone. You know, a gun. I'm like, okay, I get the message. You really don't want me to write this. And he said, That's John Hinckley's gun. And I went, Whoa. Why isn't this in a museum? So I got intensely curious, went to the public library in DC, the Martin Luther King Public Library. To find a book on this day now. Two, I'm no dummy. You know, I'm not. am not really that smart, but I, I'm not a dummy, and I know I'm going to now be hit in the face twice by this historic day. I'm not going to miss something. So I went to the library. Not a single book. I could find not a single book on this day. There was one on the 25th Amendment and one on Hinckley's trial, and I just started working. And I called the guy in the book jacket. If you look at your book jacket, this guy, the guy pushing Reagan into the car, is named Jerry Parr. He's a Secret Service agent. And I said, I don't know what's here. Maybe a magazine story. Maybe a book. I don't know. Now I'm really intensely curious. I'm going to call Jerry Parr and see if he'll talk to me. He's like 79 at the time, 78. And I didn't think he'd talk to me because they of the secret service for a reason, right? Secret. My man, you, I, next thing I know, I'm on the phone. Going, let's, meet for, let's meet for sandwiches at Crouppen's, the deli near my house. So next thing I you know, I'm at a deli with him and he's like over roast beef sandwiches. He talks for two hours. and I couldn't get him to shut up. I'm like, wow, I got a book here maybe. <laughs> and next thing I you know, I was interviewing uh, doctors like these two guys here to figure out what happened. And I got really lucky. It's a... Um, it's a sweet spot in history because I got the documentary record, which took a long time to unseal. So I got, you know, even Reagan's FBI interview report, what he said. No one's seen that before until recently. And I got the oral histories of these guys before they kind of go into the sunset. You know, and they wouldn't have talked 10, 15, 20 years ago because they were still in government. or for whatever reasons, it was a perfect time. And I also got really lucky because guys like this here realized the history and magnitude of this day. And went home and wrote detailed diary entries. They spoke into tape recorders. They took great notes. And so I could tell with precision what was said, when was said. And that just doesn't always happen as a reporter.
1: Had uh, anyone interviewed Jerry Parr before, since his retirement, about the Reagan assassination attempt?
2: Well, periodically, you know, for newspaper stories and stuff, he wrote a really cool essay about it um, for a Catholic magazine called Guidepost. In 90s. But, and he, you know, you'll find him, like, if you look at the Discovery Channel or the History Channel, you know, and there's, like, an hour-long documentary from 2001 on this or something, you'll always see a couple cuts of tape of him talking. Mm-hmm. But, like, I think that people always just kind of glossed over the surface when interviewing him, not realizing, you know, how this guy, like, Reagan's life really did come down to a split-second split decision in a mere inch. And Jerry Parr, this agent, saved Reagan's life not once, but twice this day. And he's such a humble guy. I mean, we were talking at the museum, and I was like... Well, and then I noticed this, and I did that, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, Jerry. Okay. <laughs> you know, Jerry, you say it.
1: You know. Well, do you want to talk a little bit, since you brought it up, how Jerry Parr, the role he played then? Sure. And you said he saved his life twice. Twice. So why don't you go over that? Okay.
2: Um, to set the scene, this is March 30th, 1981, and Reagan has just delivered um, a speech to the AFL-CIO, the Building and Construction's Trades Department. It's a routine speech. Presidents go to the Washington Hilton, where the speech was delivered all the time. 110 times from 1972 to 1981, all the time. And, um, and so Reagan's delivering the speech, which he actually re- wrote by hand. He rewrote by hand, which I thought was cool. I didn't realize that about Ronald Reagan, that he really didn't just read a script, but he wrote the script. And he's walking out of the Hilton Hotel towards his waiting limousine, about 25 feet away, Jerry Parr, the guy in the trench coats off his left shoulder. And behind a rope line, about 15 feet from the president, is John Hinckley, the guy we just talked about, who has a 22 caliber revolver in his pocket and who that day wasn't even, you know, that morning his goal wasn't to shoot Reagan. His goal that morning was to get on a bus to New Haven, Connecticut, where he was going to kill himself, kill the object of his affection, or kill both of them together in this mass orgy of violence. That object of affection we all know is Jodie Foster. He'd been obsessed with her for years, okay? And he changed his plans. He had stalked Carter, Jimmy Carter, the former president on the campaign trail, and Reagan during the transition, thinking, if I get the president, If I can get the president, um, if I can get the president, I will earn this woman's affection. And so he's behind this rope line. He pulls out his gun. It's a cloudy, gross day. We all remember this day. I mean, people remember what the weather was like. He pulls out this gun and starts shooting. Fires six shots in 1.7 seconds. The time it it takes me to say 1.7 seconds is 1.7 seconds. That's that fast. The first shot hits James Brady in the head, and the second shot hits Tom Delahanty, a D.C. police officer. The way to Reagan's clear, but Jerry Parr is already reacting. Before his mind can even process what's happening, it's quite incredible. In four-tenths of a second, he's grabbed the president, not gently, and thrust him towards the open limousine door. The third shot goes high and hits a building across the street. John Hinckley has fired that third shot and missed because he's good at stationary targets. He took a ton of target practice, but he's not good at shooting moving at moving ones. The fourth shot hits Tim McCarthy, a secret service agent, in the chest. He spread eagle to take the bullet, not wearing a bulletproof vest. The fifth shot hits a bulletproof window of the limousine as they flash behind it, and the sixth shot cracks across the driveway. No one knows where that sixth shot went at the time. It had ricocheted off the side of the limousine, slipped through a gap that big, literally that big, between the door and the doorframe, and struck Reagan five inches below his left armpit, and they tumble into the car. The door shuts. They take off. No one knows Reagan's been hit yet. They're taking off. They're going down to the White House. They're going down Connecticut Avenue towards the White House. That's the safest place in the world. Jerry Parr gets on the radio, says, Rawhide is okay. Rawhide is okay. That's where I got the title of the book, Rawhide Down. Rawhide's Reagan's Secret Service code name. They're taking off for the White House. 30 to 40 seconds later, Jerry Parr realizes something's wrong. Reagan's turning ashen. His lips are a little blue. He's complaining of pain in his chest. He hurt a rib. and He notices bright, frothy blood on the President's lips. That bright, frothy blood means it's oxygenated and from the lungs. Parr knows that's a big problem. He makes a decision. Now, if you look at what protocol a Secret Service agent should use, the safest place in the known universe is the White House. I go by there all the time. Trust me. You know, there are gates, armed guards, snipers on the roof. This is 1981. This could be an assassination attempt linked to, like, a, 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 you know, a military action by the Soviets. It could be a decapitation strike. This assassin's been pretty effective because as they pulled away and Jerry Parr looked out the window, he saw three bodies down and a bullet mark in the window. Three are already down. So Parr makes the decision. Safest place in the universe or a hospital where there's not an ounce of security? Nothing. Think back to Lincoln, right? I mean, that's a distant past, but look at Kennedy. All kind of conspiracies. He didn't know if there were other assassins around. He goes to the hospital. Reagan walks in. He insists on walking in. They get there in three minutes. Reagan insists on walking in, he walks in 20 feet, collapses like a dead weight. I interviewed a paramedic who saw him fall. The paramedic thought, oh my god, the president is code city, meaning he's going to die. A nurse helping carry him to a gurney on the trauma bay thought, please don't die, please don't die, please don't die. They all thought he was a goner. Another nurse couldn't detect his blood pressure, it was so low. Pumping and you know, she had to feel it, God, it was 60. Normal is 130. No, normal for him is 140. He was probably, most likely, in shock. There is some debate about that, but he's probably in shock. But they're doing their jobs. They stabilize them. They get the fluids into them, um, which is what you do in trauma care. Treat first, diagnose later, stabilize. They find the bullet mark. They find the bullet hole. It's a tiny little slit because that bullet, if you have a dime in your pocket, look at that dime. That's what that bullet looked like. And it hit him edgewise, hit a rib. Tumbled through the lung tissue, chewing up arteries and everything. Reagan would lose more than half his blood this day. They inserted chest tube to drain the blood. And when I say that Reagan's life came within a split second, a split second decision, and an inch of ending, what I mean is this. If Jerry Parr is a split second slower, Reagan gets the bullet in his head. If he doesn't go to the, if he doesn't go to the, ho- the hospital and instead goes to the White House, Ronald Reagan's a goner if that bullet, that bullet literally lodged one inch from his heart. And what did it for me in surgery, what did it for me, you know, there's a moment, as Dan will attest, when you're a reporter and you're working on a story, it's pretty good. But then you get that one detail for the third paragraph or the fifth paragraph when you know it's meaty, you know. For me, it was the moment I tracked down Dr. David Adelberg. When you're working on a book or anything, Thirty years later, you, have to, you can't just interview three people in a room. You have to interview ten to build the scene because memories fade. No matter how great they are, they fade and they disagree. So you have to interview more people. And I've, I'm working on the circle. You build the circle out. You build the circle out. And I get to David Adelberg, a 31-year-old surgical intern. 31-year-old surgical interns are nobodies in medicine. They're just not that important. I mean, they're important, but, you know, on the totem pole, they're like at the very bottom, I guess. or Whatever is the most important on a totem pole, they're at the bottom. Well, David Adelberg, I tracked him down. Ben Aaron, he's a surgical intern. He woke up that day to do a gallbladder surgery or something, just a routine thing. And here he is. He gets roped into surgery on the President of the United States. Dr. Benjamin Aaron, the very, very, very experienced chest surgeon, is hunting in Reagan's lung for this smash bullet in the lung, hunting for it. He can't find it. He has this terrifying fear that this bullet will slip into an artery and shoot into Reagan's brain. He has to find the bullet. He's also kind of worried about the political implications. He has this flash of the New York Post headline the next day. Doc leaves bullet in Prez. He doesn't like that. Meanwhile, Dr. David Adelberg reaches his hand into Reagan's chest, gently cups the president's beating heart in his hand, and nudges it aside and holds it. This 31-year-old surgical intern who woke up to do something so routine that day is literally holding the life of the president in his hand in a room surrounded by armed Secret Service agents, all wearing surgical scrubs backwards and armed to the teeth. Waiting to pounce. And so that's, you know, now, you know.
1: You get us to the hospital.
2: Yes. So, uh, Jerry,
1: one last thing quickly on that. Jerry Parr did not wait for anyone's permission to go to the hospital.
3: Oh,
2: no, that's a great point. Jerry Parr made that inst- gut check then, which relied on his training, and there's a whole subpart of the book there about Secret Service training and how it evolved and how he did that. Um, and, you know, the, the two reasons he lived are Parr, but also the doctors and the trauma care system set up it. GW also saved him.
1: Let me introduce, uh, again, Dr. Paul Columbani, who's at the table with us. Dr. Columbani has been the children's surgeon in charge at the Johns Hopkins Hospital since 91. He is the Robert Garrett Professor of Pediatric Surgery and Professor of Surgery, Oncology, and Pediatrics. He also directs the Pediatric Transplant Program at Hopkins, Dr. Columbani. And Dr. David Gens has joined us. He's Associate Professor uh, f- of surgery and the top attending surgeon at, sh- at the Shock Trauma Center at the University of Maryland uh, Medical Center do you, do you, uh, either one of you could uh, s- take this question or, or share the answer D- do you agree b- about this decision about Ronald Reagan's condition when he arrived at the hospital the decision by the Secret Service agent to go to directly to the hospital that probably saved the, uh, the president's life
4: Paul and, I, Paul and I have talked about this uh, uh, especially with Dell. And the question that Dell posed to both of us was, um, do you think he would have died if he'd gone to the White House? And, and I think both of us agreed unequivocally he would have died. They, they would not have had and did not have the proper equipment there to resuscitate him, fluids that he needed, every closer, yeah, everything closer. that he needed. So we agreed definitely. Uh, had Jerry Parton not made that decision of uh, the president— Def- I definitely would have died. Uh,
1: Dr. Uh, Gans, what was your professional status on March 30th, 1981?
4: Well, I was a little higher up than what you described. <laughs> a little higher like, on the totem pole? And, and, and Paul and I were equals as chief residents in surgery at GW uh, that day. So we were the top of the totem pole in terms of residents. Okay. And so there was we uh, it was a Monday, if you remember, and we had just switched teams. So I now on Monday was the new trauma chief surgery resident, and Paul was not. So it was a matter of our rule was that when a trauma came in or multiple, as there were that day, that whoever was covering trauma as chief would go to Bay 5A. That was the, happened to be the president, and the and then the second guy would go to this other bay. That was turned out to be Brady. Um, Jim Jim Brady, Jim Brady, the press Brady, secretary. Jim, secretary, yeah. yeah. So um, th- that's how it sort of evolved. But we were both chief residents in surgery. It's a five-year program. We were in our last year, in our last several months.
1: Well, uh, Dr. Columbani, I'll go to you for this. What do you remember of the day yourself, what, starting with when you arrived and first heard the word that Ronald Reagan had been
3: shot? Well, I, I had been in the hospital since. Th- you, can, you can pull the mic a little closer. I had been in the hospital since Thursday because I had been on call that week before. And so Monday we were switching. So I was looking forward to getting the, out of there. And um, and so we were getting ready for a journal club in the afternoon, and after the journal club, I'd be able to take off after rounds. And you know, in those days, we worked a lot. We worked, you know, ten, twelve, fifteen, eighteen-hour days. And so we were we had uh, we were getting ready for the journal club, and the the trauma pages went off. And so um, we sent the the residents that were on call for trauma, the intern and senior resident, who were the fourth year and first year residents. We sent them down to um, to the trauma, figuring that they would call us in when there was an issue um, or when, when they had evaluated the patient because the typical trauma would be a stab wound or someone hit by a car, um, something kind of routine. And so then the next thing, the, the trauma pages were going off again and repeatedly. So uh, we called, Dave called out of the emergency room, and the, t- the secretary in the emergency room was asking for four units of uncross-matched blood so, we four units al- of, again of blood uncross matched blood, meaning emergence, we need it now we can 't wait for type and cross match, so it was o o blood o uh, blood type O blood to be immediately transfused, and so we both kind of got up and ran down in the emergency room to see what was going on, as Dave said, he went to bed A where Reagan was, I went to bed B where Brady was, and began to, you know took over the resuscitations for those patients
1: uh, Dr. Colombani, uh did you keep notes during this
3: period? Um, Sometime during the night, that night, um, I I had a little notepad in my my white coat pocket, and so I started noting down what I remember the times and what we were up to. Is that
1: something you normally would do? Uh, No. But you thought, this is historic
3: so. Yeah, I think both Dave and I both said we better probably write some of this. Stuff. Yeah. How about
1: you, Dr. Gans? What did you do in terms of uh, notes or keeping a record of this?
4: Well, it, it, you're, it's odd because neither one of us would ever do this. I'm not a note taker. I, take, ma- I don't have a diary. But that time I did. Uh, and I did for the full 13 days he was in the hospital taking care of him. So, yes, I took accurate notes. As a matter of fact, I had kind of forgotten about all that. And in the attic, I had a box labeled the Grand Prix case. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was Reagan, and I'd forgotten about all the stuff I had left in that box. And then Dell started hounding me a little, and came over to the house, and I pulled the box down from the attic, and lo and behold, there's a diary, <laughs> right? Like, as a
2: reporter, it's like Christmas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, and I—he was the dust off it and he's Yeah, like, oh, yeah. He was e- he was ecstatic. <laughs> was like, like up and down like that.
4: Yeah, and so so that was part of the, some of the. We went over the all of us went over the accuracy of the times ad nauseum to make sure it's right, because I know Dell really wanted to get it absolutely right in terms of what happened when, what second almost to the second. And So, yeah, the diary was important. It turned out, and I'm glad I did it.
1: Uh, Any of you can uh, respond to this question, and then we'll take some questions from the audience since we've set the table here pretty well. Um, When did it become known to the public... And how was the news handled? How was an announcement made that Ronald Reagan was uh, likely to survive this, this attack?
4: Well, it wasn't, it wasn't us. Uh, there were some people above us, so we were still residents, you understand. So the actual uh, telling of it in front of cameras w- were done by Giordano and Aaron. And when was that? Well, it was a – I don't know exactly When? Uh, at, it was actually seemed like a day or two later over in, in the Whiteman Hall. The, um, it was actually that evening
2: at 7 Seem, o'clock. It seems like an age. I know. Well, time compressed. It was so interesting reporting this because, yeah. you know, time compressed for people. It like weird. Something would take 30 seconds, and they'd think it took four hours because it was so intense. And memorize, memor- the memories were so vivid. Um, in this case, Dr. Uh, Dennis O'Leary gave a briefing. Well, first— Lynn Knopsinger of Rumpledade, what, you know, what do we remember about Reagan this day, right? This is the most unscripted day of Reagan's presidency by far, bar none, and Reagan had a very scripted presidency, all right, one of the most scripted ever. He wanted it that way. Well, what do we remember? He sees his wife come into the ER, he looks up through his mask, and he says, honey, I forgot to duck, right? By the way, he has a chest tube in inside. he's draining blood profusely, and that's not comfortable, Right? No, it's no, not comfortable. No. <laughs> then he's getting wheeled to surgery, wheeled to surgery, and he sees his three top aides and says, "Who's minding the store?" Then, when he's in surgery, right before he gets knocked out, he gets up on an elbow, dramatically takes off his oxygen mask, and says, "I hope you're all Republicans." sits back down. Where Giordano, your colleague, says, "You know, today, Mr. President, we're all Republicans." You know, he's a very liberal guy, and if you kind of know that, it's kind of funny. Well, you know, we hear this about Reagan, and we go, "Oh my God." Lynn Knopfzinger, an aide, rumpled aide. Like, if you could pick a guy not to address the press, he's the guy. All right. This sport coat is ratty. He has a goatee. He wears like a Mickey Mouse tie or something. Did you
1: say rumpled? Rumpled. Yeah, he was
2: always known as yeah. rumpled Lynn Knopfzinger. Yes. yes. <laughs> cracker. If you asked him a question that he thought was stupid, he'd tell you, like on live television. Okay. Well, he gets this task. And what does he do? He's going around taking notes. He's going around taking notes of what the president said and everything, and he's at this press conference at like 5.30 p.m., Reagan's in the midst of surgery, and someone at the very end of the press conference says, did Reagan say anything? And he says in his memoir, he died, but in his memoir is like, it was as if, an, as if an angel was on my shoulder. You know, politically speaking, now he tells these great lines, and the public learns, oh, my gosh, A, Reagan's heroic, he really is brave, he really is kind of like a cowboy who laughs at death, and three, he is a joker. Because remember, to the campaign, he's an actor, and one of the things they threw at him all the time was, He's faking it. He's not really this way. People write these jokes. The yes. Yeah. They write these jokes. But well, there was no acting today. This is it. This is real. Every American, everybody knows. When you're facing death, you know, it's really hard to live by a script. But strangely, Reagan was funny in the researching the book, my one last funny Reagan story. Um, oh, then Dr. Dennis O'Leary at 7 o'clock, one of the doctors at the hospital, addresses the media and says basically Reagan sailed through surgery. Everything was fine. He even walked into the ER and stuff like that. So the public, this was what's ingrained in the public's mind that things were okay. He even underplayed the amount of blood lost, the amount of blood donated, that kind of stuff, and that underplayed it. But the funny Reagan story is this I hope you're all Republicans line, you know, which is like his most famous line that day. He attested it in the ER 20 minutes earlier. <laughs> all right, he's in the ER. He looks up through the OSHA mask. sees Jerry Parr, the agent, and says, I hope they're all Republicans. And Jerry looks down and goes, uh-huh, yeah, not so funny, boss, you know, because Jerry's, like, going out of his mind, okay? A nurse hears him say it. And I, when I interviewed Jerry, initially, I thought Jerry was wrong. I thought Jerry was confused. No, 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 Jerry. He said that in the OR, not in the ER. You're just confused times. Jerry's like, no, Dell. Trust me. He said it several times. I go, fine, Jerry, whatever. Interviewed this nurse who was right there with Reagan, only in the ER, and she heard him say it, too. And a technician heard him say it. I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. I mean, who does that? And I talked to Ron Reagan, Jr., his son, and his son was like... Um, no, no, that's my dad. He would do that. And he did this all the time once I got into research. But I realized it was that, you know, Reagan is a veteran of 53 movies, veteran of 53 films, his two best films, King's Row, Newt Rockney*, All-American, the two best scenes in those two best movies, hospital-like deathbed scenes. So while he is being himself, he is acting. It's amazing. It's like this, this thing.
1: Well, it attempts me to ask Dr. Gens, Dr. Columbani for their... For their um, Remembrances of, of, of the politics of Ronald Reagan's recovery, uh, anything you can share about
4: that? Well, I'd like to go back a sec about okay. when people told the public. I do distinctly remember leaving the recovery room where he was alive and not in surgery anymore, <clears throat> going up to the ICU before he got there and watching the news. First time I'd been able to watch the news. And says Ronald Reagan still in surgery. He's (laughs) going to be in there for more hours. Wait a minute! I know better than that. This is baloney. So that was the beginning of me realizing that sometimes the press doesn't have it quite all right. Right. Relative to the politics of things, um, in the very beginning, when we first made rounds on the patient, uh, on the president, um, a whole entourage. The neurosurgery group, because they wanted to see the president, to tell him about Brady. The entire, just about the entire general surgery group, thoracic group, there were about 50 people. And Nancy Reagan very quickly told the president's physician, Dan Ruge, this isn't going to happen. I want it down to two or three people. So politically she made the decision as to who was going to see the president on a daily basis, and that was Ben Aaron, the thoracic surgeon, Paul Columbani, and myself every morning made rounds. Now, some of the weird stuff that I found, in the afternoons, I would meet with Nancy Reagan and Mike Deaver. He was one of the three advisors. And Dan Ruge, the uh, president's physician, and Ben Aaron in the beginning to make plans for political plans. Well, he was supposed to go down to Mexico to visit the president of Mexico. Well, that can't happen. When can the president of Mexico visit him? We had to, you know, we had to say... Well, well, not now. Uh, <laughs> then, at that time, if my mind serves me correctly, they had announced the wedding for a Prince uh, a Charles and, and Charles Diana. Charles and Diana. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that came up. What about the wedding? Will he be okay? To, I think it was a year In July. Later. It was I, July. I, I, yeah. I, it was a while. Yeah, And we had to make a decision about that. And then, um, I suppose I could tell this, The um, towards the end as the daily meetings went on and it was myself, it turned out to be myself, Nancy Reagan and Deaver because Nancy was a little difficult so the other guys said, you do it, you take care of this. But towards the end decisions, weird decisions such as Dr. Gens, the president will walk 30 feet or, or something like that from the door of GW to the limousine. Now, do you think he will wince or will he shuffle or what kind of steps will he take? I said, I, I don't know. And, and, then, and then the killer was, when he gets into the limousine, should he go with his left arm down or right arm to get into the limousine? And how should he wave? Right arm? What is this all about? Well, what it's about is the Cold War and the Russians. And they, they told me, Deaver told me and Nancy Reagan told me, here's what it's about. We count steps. When we think someone is ailing, like a Margaret Thatcher was, we know exactly how many steps they took last year to get a certain distance. And if they're taking more steps and going slower, we measure that. So we know when someone is not on their game, so to speak, they will be looking very closely at the number of steps and how he waves. Will he have a grimace on his face? How does he get in the car? So those were the kind of the weird stuff they asked me about. As a surgical resident, how should he get in the car? Yeah, how should he wave? It's just funny hey, stuff. Doctor Columbine,
3: yeah, and you know, the, you remember the, from the book and from remembrance, the first day, Alexander Haig says he's in charge because because yeah. um, um, George Bush Senior was on his way back from somewhere in Texas or south, down, somewhere down south, and so the next morning, he was um, President Reagan was supposed to sign a milk bill for a dairy. Funding or something, and it was like this big deal. He's in the ICU. He's on narcotics, you know, and he's kind of half in and out. But absolutely, he's got to show that he's still with it and in charge. He's got to sign this bill. So the called him the three stooges came in, mm-hmm. which was uh, Deaver, Meese, and
4: who was the uh, last Ed, one? Ed Meese, uh, Baker, Jim Baker, James Baker yeah, and then, uh, three stooges,
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That didn't come in the book. No. But um, the, um, we call, we, they came in, and they demanded that he sign this bill.
4: Because that was the last. It was the milk bill. It was the dairy bill, and, and that was, it was subsidizing dairy. And that was the last day that, that it could be signed. If they didn't sign it that day, it wasn't going to happen. So, yeah, I, I laughed with Paul about, well, the guy's on narcotics, morphine, and here he is signing this big bill, and they don't care. Just push it through, <laughs> you know.
1: Alexander Haig's performance was memorable when he said I am in charge breathlessly here at the White House and that's uh, I, I, my house is, a, is white with black shutters Dutch colonial and I've often used that line with my own children <laughs> I am in charge here at the White House and I later had to explain to them that I was quoting Alexander Haig well never mind anyway I've got to give him the book now so um, we're going to take some questions, please, from the audience. And one, I just have one last quick one for Dell based on what he was saying before about John Hinckley stalking Jimmy Carter. I don't remember this. Um, was John Hinckley known to the Secret
2: Service before this day?
1: And how do, how do we know he stalked Jimmy Carter?
2: Um, he was not known to the Secret Service. What happened was he has, he has in his mind that he's going to get Carter or get Reagan to impress Foster. And he tracked Carter down to a rally in Dayton, Ohio. And he went to the rally, but he left his three guns and his bag at the bus depot. And he got within arm's reach of Carter.
1: How, how is this known?
2: Um, he, told, he was interviewed by a psychiatrist. He told him this happened, okay. and they found TV footage where you could see him. Literally, Carter's reaching into a crowd, and on the other side, of this crowd, you could see his face perfectly. In fact, what's funny is, not funny, but Jerry Parr was the agent standing right next to Carter at that moment. Wow. And so they're all right there. And then a uh, few days, weeks later, it's all blur, um, he tracks Carter down to Nashville. and He doesn't go through with it. He doesn't follow him to the event. He's getting going to the airport to hop on a plane to New York, again, to track down Jody Foster. And he rushes through security at the airport, even back then, you know, rushing through security at the airport, and his bag goes through and the officer finds three guns in his bag. They report it to the FBI, or the cops arrest him, fine him $62.50, send him on his way, keep the guns, he's gone. They report it to the FBI. The FBI doesn't tell the Secret Service. Now, in defense of the FBI, the Secret Service has always been very good at you know, casting off blame, you know, and they try to blame the FBI for that, or if we'd only known well, no. I mean, I'd interviewed agents who interview a ton of people. And there was no way to ever connect Hinckley to the stalking because he's leaving town as Carter's giving the address. So there's no way to know. Um, if, the, however, Hinckley said he kept a diary, he was infatuated with the movie Taxi Driver. And in that movie, it's about a political assassination by a taxi driver of a U.S. presidential candidate. And that taxi driver, Travis Bickle, kept a diary. And Hinckley kept a diary, too, it was in the bag. And he said if the officer had looked and opened the diary, everything would have been revealed. But instead, Hinkley destroyed the diary after that, so we'll never know what's in it. Sir? Sure. Uh, first question. Uh, did
1: Reagan or somebody go to Charles did, did Reagan make it to Charles and Diana's oh, no, no, we, no wedding? I, I
2: don't. Reagan did not, but Mrs. Reagan <laughs> did. Oh,
1: okay. And I have one more question. Uh,
2: I went to. You did you? Excited? Well, tell us what that was like no, no, and no, what no, no,
1: no. I covered it. I no, 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 Jim Brady survived and is with us today.
4: Reagan survived for some time. Now, either of you gentlemen had a
3: dialogue with either of these gentlemen in the years since it happened. Go ahead. Yeah, we um, just about a year after afterwards, we went and um, visited the president in the White House. I think it, I think that's really the only time. And then there was a reunion um, when they opened up, they opened up a new emergency room at GW and invited the Reagans for that. We were invited to that as well. Um, I got a letter from McCarthy um, around, around I guess, a 10-year point, and saying that he thanked me and that he was now like a county sheriff in, outside of Chicago and and uh, was doing very well. He was, um, he was the Secret Service man that took the shot. And I operated on him after we got Reagan and, and uh, Brady out of the emergency room. And Brady went to neurosurgery. Um, so that's really about it. No.
4: Uh, likewise, uh, received a photograph of Reagan. Uh, I'm sure Paul got the same thing I did. Very nice Autog- autograph in his own handwriting. Warmest thanks, Dr. Gens. You know that sort of thing, which was nice. Then uh, Christmas card, uh, the first year from Nancy Reagan and uh, Ronald Reagan. But uh, only when we had that reunion, when they were both there, when I was I able to talk with Nancy again at length. Just went over stuff, the emotions that we had all had at the time. Uh, other than that, no, uh, no, no uh, real communication at all. Just just the reunion, talking with her then. Uh, But that was about it. I didn't. I did. I did end up operating on Brady. I don't know if you remember this or not. But much later, he had an embolism, a blood clot. I guess I can say this: he had a blood embolism, a clot to his lung. Probably about two weeks or so into his hospital stay, trying to recover from the brain injury. And once again, I, I found it interesting about the press. Brady's gonna go back and be press secretary again. He's gonna be fine. He's functioning just fine. He came down to the OR suite, uh, and we do this particular procedure to put a a filter thing in, to filter blood clots. Came down there, I was expecting him to be talking normally to us, and he he was called the bear. He had a little teddy bear on his hand, and he was talking to the teddy bear at length about nothing. And then he polished the equipment with a teddy bear, and that's that's was the that was the press secretary potentially going back. And I said, not what the press is saying in the newspaper. This is not what I see. But yeah, so that was the only time I actually uh, got to see him and, I, and his wife uh, Sarah. Are there? Yeah, Brady, are there?
3: Brady, had a really... Brady. For most patients, would have been a non-survivable injury. He had an injury where the bullet traversed both hemispheres of his brain, but it was just underneath the left hemisphere, the the frontal lobe, and clipped the anterior cerebral artery. So he infarcted the frontal lobe rather than a damage from a bullet. And then it crossed over and damaged the frontal lobe on the other side and also enlarged the motor strip. And so that was, for most patients, that's a non-survivable injury. So all the kids and kids I see in Adults at tavesey's here in Baltimore with gunshot wounds of the head that traverse both hemispheres. Most of those patients are organ donors rather than survivors just had one this afternoon yeah. Identical to so um, he you know because he came so quickly and was resuscitated so quickly, um, he survived and and so but the damage to his frontal lobe removed a lot of um, you know a lot of our impulse control and a lot of our kind of personality you become very flat kind of um kind of lackadaisical and with very little impulse control. Yes. We,
1: earlier we mentioned Dr. Giordano from GW. His connection to Baltimore and the Shock Trauma Center this is something we don't want to overlook.
4: Yeah, this is, this is important, too, because it has to do with trauma systems in this country. And going back to the 60s, it was recognized very early that we did not have a good trauma system in the United States. So starting in California is really where the push started with investigating hospitals, deaths in the hospital from trauma, and how come people died inside a hospital, mistakes being made, things not done right. So that was the whole impetus, which came to the East Coast, the whole United States. Dr. Giordano, in his role at GW, was given the role of chief of trauma surgery. He came up to Baltimore University of Maryland Shock Trauma Center that R. Adams Kelly had started, uh, which was really the birth really of having an institute for trauma. So Dr. Giannino came up to uh, University of Maryland, R. Uh, Adams Kelly Trauma Center, and learned what was going on and how to take care of trauma, trauma systems. Before, this is before the Okay. 1970, uh, 1976-ish. He got the GW in, in 1976. 76. And it became a certified level one trauma center in 1979, and just we, two years before Reagan's Yeah. We, as residents then, Joe, Dr. Giordano set this up, we actually rotated as part of our five years. We took three months of trauma surgery at the RM's Cali Shock Trauma Center. Um, Both of us would have been 79. I came up in 79, did three months of trauma surgery, which is where I got the bug. And as you know, I'm still there. Uh, I've been there 30 years now. So uh, it was very important that we had an organized trauma system. And quite honestly, it worked very well. We were, I've said this before. We were kind of lucky, but we weren't. We were a well-greased machine. The nurses were great. Everyone did their job. There was no... uh, People trying to grandstand. Luckily, Ben Aaron. I have to hands. You know, hats off to Ben Aaron. He was perfect for the job. Uh, and being th- the thoracic surgeon involved, because he didn't grandstand. He just went right about his business. We were very lucky. It was well, well set up. Any more questions in the back there? Please
1: speak up. Yes, sir, is for both doctors. Sometimes you read where people are thrown into a crisis situation.
3: They sometimes remark get into the moment and the training takes over. They just automatically start working. And I'm just curious, at that particular day in your life when you had these this very high-profile
4: patient, did you find yourself lapsing into that, this is what I do, this is what we do now? Or were you consciously aware of who you were working on throughout the situation?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, I had been both of us had been chief residents already by almost 10 months by that time, nine months. And so we were pretty hardened to a lot of crises and a lot of difficult situations. And I think so the numbers kind of you do it by the numbers for trauma and you, you go, you know, you have a protocol that you follow. And I think that just automatically kicks in in those situations. I went to Bradbury. Brad, Brady was there. I didn't know who he was because um, Reagan had only been in office for a couple of months. I saw this white enameled star on his lapel, That's, and it was a big guy in a nice suit that we cut off pretty quickly. And then we um, got him, we sustained very quickly, and I turned around, and one of the other surgeons says, oh, there's another trauma um, in the side room. And I said, well, who's that? And he said, a Secret Service man. It's got shot in the chest. And so it just kind of just clicked.
4: And, and when you think about it, what Paul just said about the suit, think about it. The president's in your ER, in your room, you're in front of him. And you don't think twice about cutting a beautiful suit to shreds. Get it, that's, that's what we do. This is part of routine. Take all the clothes off the patient so you can see where they're injured. And it's the same thing with the president. And to answer your question about what I felt, I didn't think twice about this at all. I don't know why. When I, mean, I reflect on it, I probably should have. I didn't think about this being the president until that time when I was up looking at the TV and the ICU. And it, it, then it dawned on me, wow, this is, this is a big deal. Not until then, and it was good because we all just did our jobs. For instance, whoever the nurse cutting the suit off—I mean, that was that was big, you know—that's how we saw the the wound and stuff. So, yeah, it was. Uh, biz- I, I hate to say it, but business as usual is the way I felt about it until I finally. Wow, this is hours later, hours later. And
3: his 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 suit had no blood on it, no sign of a gunshot wound, and the uh, Secret Service man is telling everyone, oh, yeah, I think I cracked his rib when I threw him in the, in the limo and jumped on him. So if, if everyone listened to what was going on, he would have bled out and died, I bet. What? So cutting off his suit, exposing him, which is part of the initial resuscitation of a trauma patient, showed that he had this gunshot wound in his, right, left, his left side. And then the IVs, right? You, you pump them full of fluids right away,
2: regardless of what the injury might be, because you've got to get the blood pressure up. You don't do that either.
4: When I arrived in the ED to see him, I I asked uh, Wesley Price, one of the the, uh, lower residents, what do you have? What's the blood pressure? He said 80. Well, it turns out it was really 60, which the nurse had gotten by palpating the artery. So it was even lower than I thought. We followed protocol, two large-bore intravenous uh, IVs, get fluids running, and as Paul mentioned, when we saw the blood coming out after the chest was put in, uncross-matched, blood. We weren't going to wait for it to get the exact type uh, for the present. We had O-negative, ready to go, followed protocol, got them pumped up with blood, and within 30 minutes Dell in the OR, right? You I know the exact year. second.
2: <laughs> this is a, a funny story. When I was interviewing um, Dr. Gids, I came across a bunch of medical records that I sent to you and other doctors to go over to make sure they're real and accurate. And actually some, I actually had a forged medical record yeah. that I had to dump but then I, uh, but then I got a real the real one. But Dr. Gens and I were working literally. Dr. Gens, okay. so you say like we we spent like three I'm hours just telling on the phone. Paul about the oh. record. He didn't uh, know about that. For uh, three hours, uh, Dr. Gens and I were on the phone one night, going over this one medical record. And he finally said, "Dell, there are two people in the world who know whether this is right or wrong. It's you and me, and I don't care anymore." <laughs> <laughs> okay, because yeah. who's going to question? I mean, who knows <laughs> no. more than we knew at that time? So. We're like literally. Like, what does this mark mean? You know, the the forged record was people, doctors, and people left with records and like souvenirs from the trip, and they kept gobbled together. And so I cobbled together his medical file this way. And Doctor Ben Aaron, the chest surgeon, had his complete medical file, but he wouldn't give up any of it to me. So I'd send it to Ben Aaron to fact check: Is this a real record? Is it not? Because a lot of reporters have gone down the road. And been embarrassed, like, oh, this is a fake record. Well, Aaron calls me up after I sent him this record, the anesthesia record, which is very critical to piecing together timelines. Everything is noted timelines. He goes, Dale, yep, nope, this isn't the real one. I go, okay, my God, I've been working on it for a month. I go, Are you kidding? He goes, no, no, see the top right corner, they spelled my name wrong. I went, oh no, and, and no, and I went, yeah. oh no, and they, they, they you know, is a stamp, you know. So then I fought and fought and fought other sources and everything. I got the real record. Um, Maybe two weeks later, I finally got the real record from another person. Sent to Aaron. No, yeah. that's the real one. That's why I have my files fine. And the difference was everything, Dr. Gens and oh, I looked at yeah. both, they were exactly accurate. They were both the same, except the second one was really nicely written. And the other one was really messy because that's what was going on in the ER. So someone had yeah. gone, you know, I better get this perfect, yeah. pristine, got it all mm-hmm. accurate. Everything was perfect, but you still had to Paint, cast it, it. aside because it's not the real record. In fact, the real record even had the stickers from the blood bags on it. Yeah. And so, like, they take the sticker off the blood they like, stick it there, stick it there, stick it yeah. there. So I knew that was real, you know. And even it was, I was like a fourth generation, it was a two-generation that, photocopy. Yeah. Maybe.
4: That's how we knew exactly. For the, nur- I yeah. know that some of the nurses from shock trauma here in the audience. That's how we knew because yeah. the stickers weren't there yeah. on the on the false copy. <laughs> they were there on a, on a, on the real copy. That's how we knew for sure. Yeah, like, when that, I called you, I thought I was having a heart attack. Oh my god, it's not real. But but the person just redid it in nice handwriting, and there were a couple of places she, she uh, redid it to make it was more accurate. When Jim Brady left the emergency room with the surgery,
3: did you think he was going to survive? Yeah, when he hit the door, um, he had evidence that he had um, uh, increased brain pressure uh, inside the skull, and if that gets un- goes untreated, then the patient will die. Um, so he had signs of that when he came in, his blood pressure was very high because his body was trying to pump oxygen to his brain. His brain was starved for oxygen because it was swelling, was shutting off the blood flow and his pulse was very low and, um, he was, his breath breathing was irregular and he had brain, um, um, coming out of the entrance wound. There was no exit wound. So we knew that the time the the clock was ticking. And so, um, I, I thought he would survive because he, he hadn't <laughs> He, his brain hadn't her, what we call herniations when the brain pressure is so high that the brain tries to extrude through the where the spine is and and that kill, knocks off all the um, cranial nerves and he hadn't done that and he improved a bit when we gave him medicines and treatment to try and get that pressure down so and he was into the operating room also within 20 minutes or so 20 25 minutes. And, um, so I, I thought he would survive, but I wouldn't know what condition he would be in the, um, in the, uh, his
2: surgeon, Dr. Art Kobrin, is known as kind of a fiery kind of guy. In fact, I, when I interviewed him, I went in, in his office, there's all these trophy photos. He's a hunter and big game hunting in Africa, you know, and there's like, like a picture of a big gun that's like bigger than me and like all the big game he's killed. So he's kind of one of those fiery, you know, hunter guys. And, um, You know, a doctor pulled him aside. Brady was like, you know, uh, in Art Cobreen's mind, Brady had about a 50% chance of survival. He was in that bad of shape, maybe less than 50. And another doctor actually pulled Cobreen aside and said, you really don't want to operate on this guy. It's not going to be good for your career. He's not going to make it. And Ben Aaron said when he walked by he didn't think uh, Brady was going to make it. Um, And when he was in surgery, in fact, reporters reported that Brady had died. And they're in the operating room, and they hear it over the speakers. And Art Cobreen had a very, you know, I'm not going to use the curse language he hit me. He's like, what do they think we're operating on, a corpse? You know, they're still doing their jobs. They reported, and like, Yo, they reported Jim Brady had died. In fact, in the Situation Room, where um, I got very lucky in reporting what happened at the White House, um, Dick Allen, the National Security Advisor, had gone into the Situation Room, like the most secure room in the United States, with a personal tape recorder and hit record. And for four and a half hours, that thing ran, so I knew precisely what was said, when it was said, how it was said, what information from around the world was relayed to the top leaders of the country. And in that room, you know, the Secret Service told Don Regan, the Treasury Secretary, Jim Brady has died. And you hear on the tape, "Huh. Jim Brady's dead. And then Dick Allen goes, oh, my God, we need a moment of silence. And the room just goes dead quiet. This is their friend.
1: So that's how it gets to the
2: press. Yeah, and then they left from there. They had this moment of silence lasted seven seconds because they're so busy. And then it gets out. The congressional liaison, Max Friesdorf, is there. He calls a guy in the Hill and says, yeah, man, Jim Brady's dead. And then one of those guys, press secretaries, releases it. Next thing you know, it spreads like wildfire, and every network ran with it. I think Reuters was the only news organization that did not because they couldn't confirm it.
3: Yeah, I, w- I I was finished with um, McCarthy's surgeon. I walked out of the operating room, went um, in, into the walked into the surgeon's lounge, and that's when they were announcing that that uh, Brady had died. And he was both, Reagan. you know, Dave was in with Reagan. and they were doing the thoracotomy on Reagan, and they were doing the craniotomy on Cabrine at that time. I mean, not Cabrine, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> on Brady at that time. Cabrine was doing the craniotomy. So it's like, I think they interviewed some medical student that was kind of between classes or something, and got the information. I also have a question for
1: our panel.
2: It, it, generally the reporting got better over time. The White House really did not want to report that Brady—I mean Reagan had come close, so close to dying. Like we were talking about the Cold War and everything. They needed to present a united front. He's also 70 years old. And you remember all the jokes on the campaign? I'm celebrating the 39th anniversary of my 30th birthday. No one wanted to think of him being old. I mean, at one point this day, James Baker and Ed Meese – had a serious discussion, a serious discussion about transferring power from Reagan to Vice President Bush, who, by the way, is on an Air Force jet coming back from Texas without secure voice communication. I interviewed two uh, Alabama graduate students who listened in to all the Air Force Two calls. (laughs) It was that insecure, flying back. And, um, you know, it's just... uh,
1: so did the, you say the reporting got better?
2: It got as over, I'd say within a couple months, within Within a couple, months, within a couple months. You know, I, over the next two weeks, it became more and more clear that Reagan had come really close to dying, but by then he was doing great. <laughs> and so like, oh, it was a blip, you know? But that first day, I've, what I've learned too in reporting like Columbine, remember the, I read this great book by Dave Collin, Columbine? And what we're, what the public is generally left with is with that first day and the next day, the images of the first two days. Oh, these guys were goths and all that stuff. Turns out none of that was true. None of it. And, um, and so in this day, oh, Reagan flew through surgery. I mean, this, the guy was like, he flew through surgery. Uh, never was in any danger. Walked into the ER. That's what we're left with. Cracked a lot of jokes. Oh, he was tough. He got shot. He was whatever. No, man, he came within an inch, a split second of dying, a split second in a single inch. And then, you know.
1: And the detail of the ricochet, right? Yeah. Is that that's something you uncovered? No, no, they, they, they even at, at the
2: yeah even at trial was really cool. Like there's still people out there. It drives me crazy. I get these emails from conspiracy theorists. Oh, there was another gunman. The shots came from above, and I'm like, dude. I interviewed the doctor who plucked the bullet and it had black paint on it. Okay, whatever. I go. The FBI analyst at trial said three layers of black limo paint were taken off the bullet that matched the presidential limousine. Okay, the only way that bullet could have entered Reagan was by the ricochet. And there's a bullet mark in the picture taken at the scene of the of the car. <laughs> I mean, come on. I know. These people insist on it. Uh,
1: yeah, oh, sorry. Okay. So, when did you decide to embark on this project and what prompted it, and then how long did it take, and did it surprise you? The yeah. You missed yeah. the gun story, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I missed the very right. beginning. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
2: yeah. I can tell you after. Okay. You want. It's, but, you know, it, it yeah, took... The uh, gun gun yeah, <laughs> the, um, <laughs> but the, uh, it took me... You know, I worked on it for like a year to get the book proposal done, which was like 20,000 words. And then I got my contract in March of last year, and the book was done by December. So, but I worked a lot of Saturdays. If you add up the Saturdays, all the time on the book proposal, which if you look at the proposal, it's like the layout of the entire book. And all the interviews I did all that time, I probably spent a year and a half and on the, it.
1: The documents you mentioned that were sealed, these FBI, FBI yeah. reports? Yeah. Um,
2: I couldn't believe it Like, There's so much emphasis On the Kennedy assassination And, and like, even the, the near shootings of, um, of Ford in 76 And the documents that came out But no one had ever filed a Freedom of Information Act Request to get the Secret Service records Of the Reagan shooting So I did, they said no, in fact they were really insulting The Secret Service sent me a bunch of press clippings That they had in their files, it was so annoying So I, I said no, this is not acceptable Because they said oh Law enforcement proceedings, there other law enforcement proceedings. Said, oh, so you're going to charge someone else in this now then? And they're like, ooh, yeah, okay, you lost that argument, buddy. And then they gave them to me. It was like 387 pages of interviews of every agent on the scene. The medical records were really helpful. Um, I also got um, the FBI had never hadn't been queried in years to release files. And I had to make a decision because I had the book kind of, I only had about a year, and I didn't want to deluge them for all 18,000 pages in this thing. And, which would take like 17 years, if you know the FBI. So I just picked the 12 or 15 things I really thought would be important. So I got like a couple interviews of surgeons, a couple paramedics who were there who didn't remember what happened, but they gave detailed statements, and Reagan's. And Reagan's is fascinating. I mean, there's a moment. Well, I was walking out of the hotel, and I was not going to stop and talk to reporters. And the reason he's not is because he'd been in trouble a few times earlier in the term, giving impromptu comments to reporters. They, they were stopping that. No more. And the reporters were all, Mr. President, Mr. President, they all wanted to know about Poland. He wasn't going to talk about it. And then he said, if Hinckley had waited just a few seconds longer, I was going to step up on the ledge of the limousine, pull my whole body up, and wave to people across the street. He could have shot me in the back. You know, and that's, I thought that was kind of a cool thing.
1: Speaking of uh, Hinckley, what is said about him by clinicians at St. Elizabeth's? How often does he get a hearing? How is he treated? What is the regimen of his uh, life? Uh, in terms of being released
2: and all. How, how is he, is, a, he has a tremendous amount of freedom. He, he If you go down to St. Elizabeth, you can see him wandering around the campus. He um, gets nine. He's just finished ten, nine-night unsupervised visits to his mother's home in Virginia, and his lawyers aren't asking for more because he's finished them since the last hearing. The prosecutor's like, no, 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 we need more hearings before we grant you more visits. 10, home, unsupervised visits. visits. And that started in 2008. No, in
1: 2009. Does his uh, family, does he uh,
2: petition for release? He, um, no, they haven't petitioned for release yet. What the doctors will do is, his doctors St. Elizabeth keep asking for more freedom, more privileges, the driver's license, everything to get him ready for his eventual release. But they haven't gotten that far yet because they want to establish a record that he's ready. But that day will come when they do do that. And I think it's probably not so far in the near future that they will do that. They, they seem to think he's a lot better. I just don't know if the, you know, what's really fascinating too is if you, I was talking to some people in the courthouse you now get, get this is what's really interesting if he'd been convicted under the sentencing laws at the time and then the judge who was on the trial he'd probably be out by now. He would have served his time and be free. Arthur Bremer the guy who shot, uh, shot down George Wallace in 72 is free.
1: He was in a Maryland prison so, until well, few-
2: 2005 or 6. He's free and so he'd be free now but he's like a supervisor so I don't you know, people, it's a really hot, I don't know. But so
1: this is uh, hot politically, is it not? Oh, yeah. You, every Every time he
2: does something, I, if he, you know, yep, I write a story.
4: I make a comment about that. I remember being, when I was taking care of the president and talking with Nancy a lot, it's really Nancy and Nancy Reagan and Sarah Brady who were really adamant that he stay in St. Elizabeth for the, his whole life. wasn't so much the president himself. You know, he, what do he say? The, go ahead. What's, what's, his, what's, what's the beef with this guy? Yeah, what's that guy's beef? Yeah. The Anyhow, line? so that's the only comment I ever heard him Did say it, about, about uh, Hinkley. Tell him the uh, – can you, you
2: – remember you sent me a note that Reagan had written to Hinkley in 1984? No, it it's, it's, it's hilarious. It's, it's, but it's, it's funny. I'm not going to use the language, but okay. it's funny. Okay. There's a joke. He dug up in his files a funny letter that Reagan, quote, unquote, Reagan, had white sent House, to... Quote, white House logo, logo on, a, on a nice said, little white thing. Dear John, I forgive you for what happened. I've really thought about it, blah, blah, blah. I hope you're getting better. By the way, Mondale screwing Jody Foster.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and it's like, you know, that's not real. Reagan didn't write it. For the podcast yeah, yeah, people yeah, listening, yeah. Reagan didn't write that. Yeah. But it's just, you know, it's just yeah. funny. It's just, I copy. I read it. Yeah, for a I got, I'm like, oh my god.
4: Got, he he emailed me right back. Is this real? This then, can't be real.
2: Yeah, but I read it before I got. I read it before yeah. I got to the last line, and then I got to the last line and went, oh, that's funny. Yeah. I was saying. Yeah. The FBI's response to your writing about the hearing. You described what was your response to your president's book? Then. Um. I don't know. The Secret Service. I think thought the book was fair they were very leery they wouldn't really talk to me they gave me documents they were moderately helpful at times they withheld stuff I finally got the limo tapes maybe you guys remember in mid-march they released they finally released the tapes for the limousine calls where you hear the voices and how calm all the agents are at the broadcast I'd fought two years to get that release they finally gave it to me it didn't help me for the book but they had given me a transcript and I got to listen to the tape for the book Um, when they read the book I mean I got a Somehow the Secret Service, the director of the Secret Service, got a copy of the book and sent me a note saying, "Hey, thanks for the fair book," you know, which was nice. Um, Nancy Reagan actually read the book, and I gave a speech at the um, Reagan Library and talked about intimidating. All right, like this is—they do a pretty good crowd there because you know it's the Reagan Library, it's a Reagan book, so a couple hundred people are there, maybe three hundred people. And in walks Nancy Reagan, sits in the front row, about that far from me, and I'm talking about the worst day of her life, and I'm like, "Oh my God, how do I ta- how do I retailer this talk?" You know. I know. She came. I know. And afterwards, she was very polite. She said, I read your book. I liked it. And, um, and you know, just very polite. And said, no, good talk. And went on her way. And she was very sweet, you know, 90-year-old lady. And, but she was very interested. And this was clearly the worst day of her life because I overheard her tell Jerry Parr, who was with me at this talk, the agent, Jerry, thanks for giving me my life back. That's 30 years ago, you know, so...
1: Yeah. make the little
0: comments. Yeah. I always
1: found his comments so reasoned and cogent. It always it seemed to make sense to me. This is my, where I'm headed. When he became president, lots of people, especially lots of people from my racial style dismissed him completely. This was an actor. He was of no substance, no relatives. I'm headed now to currently we have an African-American president now that all of us almost have embraced. I'm just curious if you have any point of view, given your your view of this whole Reagan thing, about on one hand being completely dismissed by whole people,
4: currently now this guy that we completely embrace. It. But Reagan seems to have been the benefit, and this guy, at least in my opinion, seems to be
1: almost... Uh, a
3: complete
2: opposite of a benefit. Um, Am I making any sense there? No, no, I, 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 get, I get what you're getting at. Um, I, yeah, I think that, you know, um, like for me, I didn't really know much about Ronald Reagan when I got into reporting the book and researching it. And I came to actually realize that he really didn't care if people underestimated him. He used it to his political advantage. He had a, a big plaque on his desk that said, um, you know, there's no limit to what a man can achieve if he doesn't care who gets the credit he actually really cared. he really admitted it i mean edmund brown when he when he ran against edmund brown in the in the gubernatorial election in 1966 you know edmund brown ran, ran a really funny campaign ad that said um, uh, you know he was attacking reagan for being an actor and uh, he's an act, just an actor we know who killed lincoln don't we you know and reagan beat him by a million votes he used that in his campaign yeah he did it was uh, he was talking yeah do we know who shot lincoln don't we an actor, right? You know, and he lost. He got drubbed. And no one thought Reagan would beat Edmund Brown. Nobody. Um, and I think also his policies, you know, were very conservative, business. He was a very pro-business guy. Um, you know, do I agree with all of his policies? No, but no one pays me to care about policies I have. I just came to look at him as an historic figure who was a good leader. I came to admire him. He's a lot smarter than people gave him credit for. He really was a good speech writer even.
1: What happened to his popularity oh, after the shooting? this...
2: Session, yes. He, um, uh, you know, this day, you know, American people, this is the day that allowed us a glimpse of who he really was. And unvarnished glimpse, his poll rating skyrocketed. And people, someone made the argument, oh, you're only saying that because we had sympathy. No, it's that people got to see who he really was. We liked it. He really was kind of a cowboy. We've had just a string of failed presidencies, by the way. Lyndon Johnson didn't seek a full second term. Nixon, Watergate. Ford, three years and out, and Malays drowned Carter. And we turned to a 69-year-old former actor to help the country, and he's shot. That's great. The last four presidents who were shot while in office all died. You know, the track record ain't great. Everyone was thinking about Kennedy right when Reagan shot. That's what everyone immediately thought of. And the guy lives. Not only that, he's cracking jokes. He's brave. He's cracking jokes to the nurses. That night in the recovery room, he's writing these notes all in all, I'd rather be in Philadelphia, or send me to L.A. where I can see the air I'm breathing. And I actually have to hold these, you know. And I got to hold these notes, you know, his actual notes, you know. And so I think, you know, I think that Reagan, you know, this bonded. And in the, in the poll numbers went way up because people saw who he was. They felt sympathy for him too, sure, but they liked that. They helped him get his economic plan through. It rededicated his focus to ending nuclear, the threat of nuclear war, all that kind of stuff. Now, did his poll ratings drop? Of course. They plummeted. People wondered if he'd run for a second term. But people liked him, all right? There was a, I don't like his policies, he's terrible for the country, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I kind of like the guy. That's what I got from, you wouldn't it's believe, no, and he destroyed Mondale. I went to, uh, when you're at the Reagan Library, they have the maps, of the electoral maps of 80 and 84, and I still couldn't believe. You know, you realize Reagan had the lowest approval rating? of any president in his first term, 65 days in office, just five days before the shooting. This transformed everything. It recalibrated everything. The electoral map for 1980 is all blue because they reversed the colors back then. Blue for Republican, red for Democrat. It was all blue. Like Carter won like six states or something. And then you have Mondale, it was all blue again. I mean, it's amazing. You know, He started off, he beats Carter, dips because he has controversial policies, people are questioning him. The shooting happens, we like what we see, it goes back up goes back down but you know not so much cuz people like him and he, he wins again.
3: You talked to Reagan? Didn't
2: you? I never talked to Reagan. He died in
3: 2004. All right? Well, thank, thank you very you. much. Thank you. Thank you. You're great.